Delighting in Adversity. Welcome, it's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard each day. To not be satisfied with just a little empty religion in life as a shallow substitute for what God wants for us. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others, all influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. In the book of James, we read, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Consider it a joyful thing when you experience trials. We're in the midst of a series called Power Through Weakness, Part 1, Delighting in Adversities. Later on, accepting our limitations. Today we'll be hearing from Rachel Johnson, Creative Media Director for the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, as she oversees the team that does social media and those that publish devotionals and newsletters. Also, from 1956, we go back to a broadcast called The Back Home Hour, the memorial service for the five men killed in Ecuador. Right now, let's get to part three of this five-part series, Power Through Weakness, Delighting in Adversities. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, continuing my talks today on Power Through Weakness. I told you yesterday a story of my grandson, Walter Shepard, who had gone to Peru and then went down to Bolivia to visit his cousin, who's a missionary down there, and on his way back he was robbed, not once, but twice, two days in a row, two different places. And he lost a number of things, including his passport, practically all of his clothes except what he had on, and his six months journal of his time with his Uncle Bert Elliott, who is a missionary, has been a missionary in Peru for 45 years. And I quoted from 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. These are verses that my father loved and I suppose would be perhaps one of his, among his life verses, and he often quoted them to us. And of course, we thought that daddy could do anything as children do, and yet he was one who was very aware of his own weaknesses. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, what a lesson to learn, to delight in things like that. It doesn't come naturally, does it? For when I am weak, says Paul, then I am strong. I have a poem here. It's called The Mendicant, a word that's very seldom used nowadays. It means a beggar. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne, and begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, But, Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. 
This is a strange and hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, My child, I give good gifts, and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Now you may remember that the verses that I just read come from the context of the story of God allowing Satan to give Paul a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that thorn was, but it says it was a messenger of Satan given by God in order to keep Paul from becoming absurdly conceited. I think if you'll read the passage carefully, you'll see that the thorn was not only a messenger of Satan, but it was given in order that he might not become conceited. And certainly Satan is not going to give you anything that's going to keep you from becoming conceited because Satan would just love to get you conceited. And so God allowed this thorn in Paul's life, the, mo the most important thing for him to learn so that Paul would be in a position to teach you and me that the grace of God is sufficient. Paul had to learn it in his weakness. You and I also have to learn it. Disciples are those who have chosen to follow Jesus. We have accepted the conditions of discipleship. We are trudging along like pilgrims on the pathway of the cross. We have not achieved sainthood in the usual sense. We're deeply conscious of our weaknesses and our failures. Experience is God's curriculum, teaching us faith. Does God guide us according to our desires? Not always. The psalmist says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will do this. The Lord doesn't always seem to give us the desires of our heart, does he? But as we noted in this poem by the, about the mendicant, he thought that the thorn was a very strange gift to receive. But ultimately, he understood that it was a good gift and it came from God. I have a letter from a woman who is obviously angry with God because he won't give her what she wants. She says, I have prayed and begged him for years now, and it just seems like it never goes away. I have tried with all that I have in me to turn this thing over to God, knowing he's in control and has all power to work. I've told God I don't want to accept my husband's addiction. It scares me, and it hurts and I'm afraid God won't change things. Now, what can we say to that lady? Can I say with any authority, yes, God will deliver your husband from addiction? No, I can't say that. All we can do is to trust that God will give us what is good 
And only God can be the judge of what fits into his pattern for good. And it may be that God wants this woman to learn his power through her weakness and her helplessness to deliver her husband from addiction. It's a certainly a legitimate desire, isn't it? That your husband would be delivered from addiction. And yet, we are not the ones dictating to God what needs to be done. We bring our requests in humility, and we believe by faith that God is going to act according to his sovereign, holy will. The old writers used to call it detachment, holding all my desires and all my prayers on an open palm, not clutching them. And the Apostle Paul has opened to us the secret of his soul, a story of a personal spiritual experience, an awful need, and a wonderful deliverance, a strong man, and a tremendous trial that came just because of a little thorn. There was darkness in his spiritual sky, but he cried to God. And that we find again and again and again in the Psalms. The writers of the Psalms crying out to God in the midst of terrible troubles, suffering, horrible events in their lives. King Alfred the Great said to his subjects, If thou hast a fearful thought, share it not with a weakling, whisper it to thy saddle-bow, and ride forth singing. If thou hast a fearful thought, share it not with a weakling, whisper it to thy saddle-bow, and ride forth singing. The saddle-bow is the, the horn on the saddle. So you're not going to be weakening another person by your own weaknesses. We want to strengthen one another when we can. Jesus himself was once driven to strong crying and tears. We find that passage in Hebrews 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Now, did his father save him from death? No. Here we find that great mystery of the will of God and the necessity of evil and suffering. And Jesus was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. One of the greatest mysteries that I ponder, how could Jesus learn obedience? Why did he need to learn obedience? Well, because he had taken upon himself humanity, and he surrendered to suffer everything that humanity has to suffer. He was acquainted with grief. He said, scorn has broken my heart. And so in the case of Jesus and in the case of Paul, each cry was met with a transcendently higher blessing, grace, the Lord of love and power, giving himself to you and me, pouring out himself, his love, his very soul unto death. That's a definition of grace. 
the Lord of love pouring out himself, giving himself to us. What are we asking of him today? What is it that you're hammering on God's door about? Maybe what you need to pray is, give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. That's the best thing we can ever ask. And then sometimes the very dreaded thing, the adversity, the thing that we are desperately hoping will not happen, changes its character and its position. And it becomes an occasion, not of falling, but of mounting up with wings as eagles. And they shall walk and not faint. Is his grace sufficient for you today in your situation? Can we learn Paul's lesson, power through weakness, spiritual strength through natural suffering? Power Through Weakness, Part 3, Delighting in Adversities. Later on, accepting our limitations as we hear Part 4 of Power Through Weakness. Also, we'll have an excerpt from a memorial service in January of 1956 in Ecuador as they paid tribute to the five missionaries killed, including Jim Elliott. That's coming later. Right now, though, it's Rachel Johnson, Creative Media Director for the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation. Hey, Rachel, what comes to mind when you hear the name Elizabeth Elliott? The phrase, trust and obey. Um... Elizabeth was someone who trusted the Lord with everything and obeyed him no matter what the price appeared to be um, to the outside world. Uh, She was a woman who fearlessly and very willingly trusted and obeyed what the Lord had for her. From the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, that was Rachel Johnson. Coming up later, we'll hear a short excerpt, about a minute and a half, from a memorial service in Ecuador back in January of 1956. First, though, it's part four of this five-part series, Power Through Weakness, accepting our limitations. We do have limitations. Maybe we try to avoid admitting to it. How can we accept those things? Yesterday, I read part of a letter from a lady whose husband was... Uh, suffering some sort of an addiction. And, of course, she had been praying and praying and praying that the Lord would take it away and deliver him, and the Lord had not done that. And she said at the end of her letter, I need to know how to pray and what God expects from me, why he won't take away the hurt and the worry. I know only God can change my husband, but yet I keep trying. How do I turn this over completely? And once again, I have to say, we do not know the answers, and God is not asking us to understand. He is asking us to trust him. Does God really know what he's doing? Does the Lord of the universe ever make mistakes? Did he not hear your prayer? Does he like your husband's addiction? I think you know the answers to all of those questions, and yet, of course, we would like much further explanation than God gives us. And he says, my grace is all you need, for power comes to its full strength through weakness. So in answer to the lady's question, 
I need to know how to pray. Pray that the Lord will teach you to rest trustfully in Him, to abide in Him, and to leave all the unanswered questions with Him. And pray, of course, it's it's reasonable, it's right that we should make our requests known to God. We've been told to. But we cannot expect that God is going to give us explanations about his delay or perhaps about his answer, which might be no. And very often our prayers are answered with that one little word, no. One of the blessings of maturity is the realization of an acceptance of limitations. Immaturity refuses to acknowledge the inevitableness of life, the necessity of sacrifice, relinquishment, what some old writers used to call holy abjection or detachment. Holy abjection is uh, similar to poverty of spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're not asking for too much. The long, hard lessons in God's curriculum. But one of them was learned by Paul through that mysterious thorn. And I read you a poem yesterday about that thorn. It doesn't seem like a good gift. And yet Paul recognized it as a very good gift because it was through that that he learned the priceless lesson which has been taught to millions of Christians ever since. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's a tough lesson, isn't it? And it's one that we have to learn over and over and over again. We would have been deprived of one of the deepest and highest spiritual revelations if it hadn't been for Paul's experience of a thorn, And have you ever thought about the possibility that your experience of some kind of thorn may be God's way of blessing somebody else? Think about that. It's amazing, isn't it? We've been blessed by Paul's testimony. Oh, yes, we say, but he was the Apostle Paul. But don't forget, God created you. God put you where you are. God allowed the things which have happened in your life, which have upset you. It might very well be that it is in order that you may bless someone else and bring power to them through your own weakness. These are tough lessons, of course, but we can't have it all our way. It's Christ in every moment, Christ in me, Christ in my circumstances. When I pray, give us this day our daily bread, I don't know what may be on God's platter for me. I don't even think of daily bread primarily when I pray uh, as food, literal physical food. Most of us are not really worried about whether we're going to have any bread at all today. But I think of it as everything that he gives me, including my food. But the trials, the tribulations, the disappointments, the responsibilities, the work, the surprises, these are all daily bread. And he is bread from heaven, giving himself to us and for us. And what can I do for him? I, in turn, present my body as a living sacrifice. 
in the beautiful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, it has this stanza where the whole realm of nature, mine, that were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Nothing less than my body as a living sacrifice. I have a dear friend who is single. She's been through tremendous physical suffering over many, many years. And she writes me letters every once in a while, sort of chronicling her uh, pathway of suffering. Here's, one, here's her most recent. I've decided our lives are really not made up of great moments, just little consistent breaths of God's hand upon us. Grace, 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 abounding everywhere. So close sometimes, at least to me, that I get spooked just taking a breath, putting one foot in front of the other, watching mature lovers embrace, holding a child. Do we realize how poignant and real and close God is to us? How much closer can one get than within? Anyway, she says, I waddled into church yesterday, trying to silently slip into a corner where no one would notice my presence. Although I enjoy the meeting of people and fellowship, when the aim of my heart is so insidious toward the silent, still altar, it is at times all for me, just to keep my face about me in conversation, just so I can get away and be alone. Yet my hurrying did not make my noticing all the women and their babies any less. I couldn't help but wish and long for that hope deferred. And so, walking away, thinking in my heart's mind, of course, that life coming from life, women giving birth, and how utterly real that makes their course, I muttered in my heart, but God, when do I get to bring some life out of this life? And as clear as a bell, it came. It is, my child, my set of eyes that you must use in order to see. And who is to say that I have not already drawn life out of life from you? By whose definition are you seeing things? And who is to say that your life has not already birthed new life in someone's heart, in someone's glimmer of who I really am? Do not concern yourself with such trivial and shallow definitions of what appears to be life on the surface, for my purposes are so much greater than all the noblest and faithful plans of man, that to contain myself and my purpose for human history and life in such simple ways is to limit my hands and is trying to put out an unquenchable flame. So, if it's life coming from life that concerns you so, will you trust me? Enough to slay this life that is in you now, so that I can keep you in peace, and that your life will satisfy my desire for you. Yes, Lord, she says, and then her letter ends with, Cool, hey. Thanks, Liz, for that testimony. We can't have it all our own way. Think of Johnny Erickson Tada. You all know about Johnny Erickson Tada, a woman who has been tremendously used by God in her weakness, 
paralyzed ever since she was 16 years old when she dove into shallow water and broke her neck. She has been permitted by God to suffer, and all the prayers and all the anointings that have been given to her by people all over the world that God would heal her, they have not, up to date, availed. God's answer has been a kind, loving, and unequivocal no. Could God have prevented the accident? He could have. He did not. He is a sovereign God. And Evelyn Underhill writes, This realization of dependence is saved from the limp passivity of quietism by the fact that divine action is always felt to deepen and to energize the self's action, transform, absorb, and use it, rather than abolish it. Divine action is always felt to deepen and energize the self's action, our action in other words, and God's action can transform, absorb, and use our feeble little actions, our weaknesses, in ways beyond our imagining. My grace, he says, is all you need. Part four of our series, Power Through Weakness, Accepting Our Limitations. Well, we've been thinking about adversity and limitations, about power and about weakness today. Well, let's go back to January of 1956 for about a minute and a half and hear just an excerpt from the memorial service for the five missionaries killed when they sought to reach out to the Alka or Waldani people. This is from Quito, Ecuador. It's the Back Home Hour. Greetings, radio friends, round the round world. The Back Home Hour tonight will be a memorial service to the five missionary martyrs who gave their lives for Christ and his gospel just one week ago, seeking to reach the savage Auka Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. To try to evaluate what these men have done in human terms is indeed difficult. To think of this martyrdom of five valiant men on a material basis is indeed absurd. Even to put this sacrifice of supreme devotion on the level of altruism or humanitarianism simply doesn't satisfy our hearts. There must be something higher, something more noble, something more glorious, and indeed there is, as you've already heard mentioned previously. There is only one right and satisfying explanation for what happened out there in Operation Auka just one week ago. It is on the high spiritual elevation of love of Christ and of his gospel more than the love of self. In this is the lesson that shall be ours and the world's as long as the names of these five men shall live in our memories. The Apostle Paul was a man of this stripe, and he wrote, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I am ready. 
to be offered. The Back Home Hour, January 15th, 1956. Well, we'll continue thinking about power through weakness, and we'll think about satisfaction that comes. That's next time. And let me thank you for taking some of your time to join us today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org. More lectures, more devotionals, videos, Gateway to Joy programs, and more. ElizabethElliot.org. And if you get a chance, leave us a review for this uh, time together. Thanks. But until next time, may God remind you daily that you're loved with an everlasting love. Underneath or what? That's right. And underneath are the everlasting arms.